Have you ever wished you could get in touch with a favourite philosopher and ask them a question? If the answer is yes, then this program could be for you. You're in the Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. Welcome. Obviously, writers are influenced by the climate of ideas uh, of their time, and uh, they're likely to be educated people who know a little bit about philosophical change and so forth. But the amount of philosophy they succeed in expressing in the book is very small. I think as soon as philosophy gets into a novel, it ceases to be philosophy. It becomes something else. It becomes a plaything of the writer, and and quite rightly, the harder the um, writer works to present his ideas, the less good his work of art is likely to become. I think it's a very dangerous activity. I think that, again, you see the great 19th century uh, writers get away with quite a lot of uh, idea play in their writings, but if you look at it, you you couldn't possibly regard it as philosophy. It's, It's idea play. Iris Murdoch, the British philosopher and novelist who died in 1999, had she lived on, she would have turned 100 years old in July last year. And to mark the occasion, my two guests today decided to embark on a wonderful public philosophy project. People were invited to send questions that they would like to ask Iris Murdoch via postcard. And those postcards were then sent out to philosophers around the world to be answered. It's called Philosophy by Postcard. Philosophy by Postcard is a centenary project for the philosopher and novelist Iris Murdoch. She was born in Dublin in 1919, and last year the Irish Post Office on Post released a commemorative stamp celebrating Murdoch. It's a gorgeous stamp by artist Steve Simpson. And we thought, well, we want to do something with this stamp to raise the profile of Murdoch uh, as a philosopher. But also to think a little bit about philosophy and the way philosophy is done, who asks philosophical questions and how we communicate philosophically. And the postcards seem like a really good format in which to try and explore those kind of questions. That's Claire McCool. She's a lecturer in philosophy at Durham University. Iris Murdoch herself was a really avid correspondent. She used to spend about three or four hours a day, every day, writing to her various correspondents across the world. So we thought that Philosophy by Postcard, it all sort of came together thinking about Stam, Murdoch, her passion for writing and, uh, yeah, questions about how we do philosophy and its form. Claire's co-organiser on this project is Rachel Wiseman, who lectures in philosophy at the University of Liverpool. We were really surprised and really delighted. Um, On Post gave us a a PO box, which was Iris Murdoch's address. So you could send your postcard in the post to Iris Murdoch. And we got over 400 postcards um, from all over the world, actually. And it was just so exciting to see that people kind of had questions and were confident and, and wanted to ask them. We were also really excited by the response from philosophers because we knew from the beginning we needed 100 philosophers and um, we were a little bit nervous about asking philosophers to do something that's so far outside their kind of comfort zone. But actually everybody we asked was super excited about it and lots of people came forward to volunteer and we had more people wanting to answer questions than we had uh, than our 100. So it was fantastic from both sides. How did you choose the philosophers involved? And, and in their answers, were they supposed to in some way you know, channel or anticipate Iris Murdoch, give the kind of answer that Iris Murdoch would have given, or do they just sort of offer their own take on a, a Murdochian question of some kind? 
Well, we ourselves have quite a large group of uh, collaborators working on a project that we're directing about Iris Murdoch, but also three other female philosophers that were at Oxford during World War II. Um, there, Philippa Foote, Elizabeth Anscombe, Mary Midgley, as well as uh, Murdoch, and they were all friends. And we're looking at their philosophy as we're kind of trying to look at them as a kind of collective. So we have quite a large group of collaborators at the moment, and we reached out to those, um, and they were all very enthusiastic. But we also put a call out, a kind of global call for philosophers to, to join in and help us. And we got a really fantastic response. We were really overwhelmed, as Rachel said. And a lot of them, they did have expertise in Iris Murdoch. I think even more philosophers would have come forward if it was just the straightforward philosophy by postcard. But because it's a commemorative project for Murdoch, we were slightly hoping a bit of Murdoch would be challenged. And I think it channeled rather. And I think in some of the answers definitely you can you can hear the Murdochian voice coming through and lots of the responses are in a kind of Murdochian vein but it wasn't something that we like at all insisted on. Yeah one of the things that when when the philosophers kind of signed up we asked them to write 50 words about what Iris Murdoch's philosophy meant to them and you can read all those on the website so we kind of tried to get our philosophers thinking about Iris Murdoch and with Iris Murdoch um before they got their postcard um, through the post. So a lot of the, the philosophers are Murdoch specialists or, or kind of love Murdoch or love her novels. And so that really comes through in, in the way that they've answered the questions, we think. Yeah, one thing that really came through to me, I mean, you you sent me a sample list of 20 questions and what struck me was the breadth of topics. You know, they ranged across art and ethics and uh, there was, you know, the grief felt by somebody who was an atheist but still missed God and uh, a really interesting one about memory and identity from someone whose family member has Alzheimer's. And, you know, this isn't people just sending out random philosophical queries into the void. These are all questions that address themes in the work of Iris Murdoch, which I think says something about the breadth and depth of her work, but what were some of the outstanding questions for you? Were some of the ones that you you particularly liked? I really like a question that um, Australian philosopher Marcus Valeris answered, and it's a it was a question from a child, and the question was where do my thoughts go? That really intrigued me. It's such a it's such a great question, and Marcus's answer was really lovely as well. So he distinguished between episodes of thinking you know, just like you might be thinking right now, thoughts are racing through your, your mind. And what our episodes of thinking are about, you know, those thoughts. And he distinguished between those subjective kind of fleeting episodes of thinking and the thoughts which are actually objective and public. And you and I could have the same thought in that respect. And I thought it was such a lovely answer and also really accessible to a child. And there was another really lovely one which was answered by philosopher Jane Heal, and the question was, why do we eat together? Mm-hmm. And uh, Jane's response kind of drew on our kind of animal nature, like we're animals that like to relish uh, food together um, and we use food as a kind of conduit for sharing and conversation. And it's just a really nice response. Claire, what would your own question be to Iris Murdoch? Yeah, Rachel and I were talking about this. So um, one of the key ideas in Murdoch's ethics is this idea that we are fundamentally selfish and we can be quite egotistical and part of the moral work that we need to do as individuals is to try and kind of suppress what she calls this fat relentless ego. So she has this idea that we're selfish, we're egotistical, it's really difficult for us to suppress our egos um, but this is something that we need to try and do and she calls this process unselfing. 
So unselfing is this kind of process of, of just trying to suppress all of that kind of egoism. And in her view, if we can do that, that, that brings us closer to reality. And she uses all these metaphors of seeing and vision. And she thinks if we can unself, we'll be able to see reality more clearly. And she doesn't just say that we ought to do that. She gives us tools and gives us suggestions of how we might do that. So there's a lovely description in one of her writings where she describes her seeing a kestrel. She just looks up and she sees a kestrel. And suddenly all her selfish kind of private kind of brooding thoughts kind of slip away. And she's just confronted with the reality of this kestrel. Um, so that would be an occasion where there's an episode of unselfing. But the question is, you know, if I'm un unselfing when I see the kestrel and you're unselfing when you look at a piece of art, you read a novel and someone else is un unselfing kind of over there, like there is a kind of scaling up question, like how do we all sort of unself together or how do we transform these episodes of unselfing into some kind of social movement or do something with So I'd sort of ask her, because in a way it's quite individualistic, which is fine and it's good. And in fact, it's part of her kind of the existentialist sort of slant that you get in Murdoch um, is really strong there. But if you want to try and scale up and do something with this Murdochian ethics at a much broader level, I'd sort of ask her how she thinks of that, how that would work and how that would go. Yeah, that's a great question. What about you, Rachel? What would you ask Iris Murdoch if you could send her a postcard? Yeah, so again, we were, we were talking about this before we spoke to you. So another aspect of Murdoch's philosophy that I suppose is connected as well to her as, as a novelist. She has this, this idea that whenever you describe something, so if, if I say to you, David, can you know, describe your room? Or if I say to Claire, you know, describe your husband or any description at all, she thinks it's always value laden because it's always from your perspective. So whatever you're describing, even if you're describing a very mundane scene around you, the words that you, you choose and the, the things that you pick out as worth describing are going to kind of encode your own perspective, but also something about what's valuable to you and what, what doesn't matter and what shows up. And again, this connects with this idea of being able to see things for, as they are. So Claire and I are currently writing a book about Iris Murdoch and the three other women that, that Claire mentioned before. And so We'd love her, or I'd love her, to describe one of those women. Um, and in particular, we're really fascinated with, uh, by the relationship that she had with Elizabeth Anscombe, who was just an incredible philosopher. Her and Iris Murdoch had an incredibly intense friendship that is kind of shrouded in mystery. And both women are, are such fascinating figures. And I would love to ask Iris Murdoch to describe a philosophical conversation with Elizabeth Anscombe. And I think we'd learn so much about Elizabeth Anscombe from that, but also about Iris Murdoch. Well, Rachel, you've written about not just Iris Murdoch and Elizabeth Anscombe, but also Philippa Foote and Mary Midgley, who all met and became friends at Oxford University as undergraduates during the Second World War. And you say that they flourished in an environment that was and is hostile to women. We'll, we'll, we'll get on to is in a minute, but what about Oxford in the 1940s? How was it hostile to women and, and why were these women able to flourish there? Well, academic philosophy at, at Oxford in, in the 1940s was pretty hostile in, gen in general, I suppose. But it was especially hostile to women 
partly because there were just so few women around, partly because the route into philosophy that you took as an undergraduate through a, a course called Mods and Greats required you to come in with an enormous amount of Latin and ancient Greek that a girl's education just didn't prepare them for. So they were already sort of hitting the ground miles behind their their male contemporaries. It's also the case that philosophy is or has been a very sort of combative discipline. It kind of valorizes uh, a certain kind of cleverness that involves being able to Um, expose the other person as foolish or be very quick at finding flaws in their arguments. Um, So it kind of encourages a certain sort of bravado that is maybe more difficult for women or, or young women in particular to kind of step into. So I think the environment that they were entering in that period was definitely one in which women weren't expected to to flourish. And it's also the case that, you know, many of the women who were their contemporaries ended up marrying one of the Dons and, and just becoming a Don's wife. So it wasn't like there was a sort of clear path laid out of them from being an undergraduate to being a, a fellow of a college in the way that there was for their male contemporaries. But then, of course, the war came along and that, that sort of changed everything. How did it change everything? Maybe Claire will switch to you here. How, how were they able to, to get ahead in this environment? Yeah, well, first of all, um, a lot of the younger male dons were away. They were gone. They were fighting. And um, I think the numbers went from there being one in, six, one in six people were women to something like, you know, close to half or around 44% or something like that. So there was a massive demographic shift. At the same time, there was an influx of refugee scholars from uh, continental Europe. Now that had started much earlier in the 30s, but it kind of snowballed um, towards the end of the 30s. And so the women were actually being taught a lot by refugee scholars and that changed the content of what they were actually being taught and how it was delivered as well. So um, they were taught often in seminars. So usually Oxford is a one-to-one tutorial system or maybe one-to-two. So they did still have tutorials, but... They also went to seminars and so the form in which the the philosophy was taught, that changed too. They also weren't taught, if you like, the most sort of cutting edge or avant-garde doctrines of, of the day. In particular, I'm thinking of like logical positivism. It's not that they weren't taught it, but it wasn't promoted to them as something they ought to sort of take up and run with. It, rather, it was presented to them as something that doesn't really work very well, especially the ethics that logical positivism promotes. So for a logical positivist, uh, sentences that have meaning are those that can be verified. Um, but you can't really verify you know, the truth of sentences like this is beautiful or this is good. There's no sensible quality or anything that you could point to directly and say, this is what makes something good. So yeah, so I would say that that was also a major factor, the fact that they weren't presented with logical positivism as something that they ought to try and defend, but rather the opposition. Just to add to that as well, and Claire talking about the, the shift in demographic, I mean, the other thing that, that Mary Midgley told us about and also talks about in her amazing um, memoir, The Owl of Minerva, is that as well as the refugee scholars, there were the pacifists, 
Um, and the people who had been, who weren't able to fight because they were unfit for military service. So you had this kind of, you moved from the, these classrooms in which you had a lot of very competitive young men pushing themselves forward straight out of the, the British English public school system to a collection of refugees and women and pacifists. And Mary says, you know, we were much more interested in trying to figure out this deeply puzzling world than we were in putting each other down. And so she thinks that that kind of created a space in which philosophy could become what maybe it, it is sort of more traditionally uh, something that people can do together collaboratively. And, and I think this can, again connects with what Claire was saying earlier about Iris Murdoch, that in those classes, what you had was a kind of joint object of attention, namely like this reality that we're all now in, that we're all trying to figure out. And this recognition that it's a kind of collaborative enterprise to try to get our heads around how to act and how to move forward in this world, rather than this idea that what we're all here to do is kind of show who's the smartest. On RN, this is The Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge, and I'm joined this week by Rachel Wiseman and Claire McCool, two philosophers based in the UK who are the masterminds behind the brilliant project Philosophy by Postcard, in which the public have been invited to send questions that they would like to have asked the philosopher Iris Murdoch, who died in 1999. The answers to those questions will be published a little later this year. There's a lot of information on their website, and we'll put a link to that on our website. That's abc.net.au slash rn. Look for The Philosopher's Zone on the program menu. Well, let's get back to Iris Murdoch, who has, I think, always been a slightly anomalous figure in philosophy, a marginal figure, maybe just by virtue of the fact that she wasn't just a a philosopher, she was a novelist as well. But if we were going to talk about her or recommend her as a central thinker, maybe an essential thinker, not just of her time, but right now in 2020, what would we be pointing to in her work that addresses vital contemporary concerns? I think her moral psychology in particular. So I think the idea of unselfing, which we raised before, I think her idea of the individual as historically situated. And, you know, this is something that analytic philosophy is not that good at taking on board the fact that we're shaped by our material circumstances and that can shape the kind of questions we ask. And for Murdoch, you know, what we can see, uh, what we've been exposed to, that can provide us with sort of prisms through which we see reality. And if our material environment is deprived in some way or it's impoverished, you know, culturally for various reasons, that will impoverish the kind of interpretive tools or the hermeneutic resources we have to kind of understand our own position and our own relation to the world. She's so unique in so many ways, I have to say. She's incredibly synthetic, like she's drawing on the whole kind of stream of existentialist thinking, but also she's incorporating Wittgenstein, Plato, obviously, the you know, ancient philosophers, she's just, it's a morass of fervent of references and ideas, and she's able to synthesize them and bring them together to this central focus, I, I guess, which is the individual at a historical moment. And she's trying to describe, you know, the texture of our interaction with reality and how we can actually come closer to that reality and what stops us. Rachel, what about you? 
everything that Claire said, then I would completely agree with. One thing that she didn't mention that I think has been really important to us is, um, so there's a line that gets quoted a lot where she says, a man is a creature who makes pictures of himself and then comes to resemble those pictures. So Murdoch has this idea that humans, like all sort of all animals, have a particular nature. So that there's certain facts about us in virtue of us being the kinds of animals that we are, that if you like, are immutable. But what's really distinctive about human animals is the capacity that we have for imagination and creativity. And this is manifested in, in the artworks that we make and also in the way that we can picture our own futures and be shaped by that image that we have of, of who we might be or, or who we could be. Now, this kind of power to picture and, and to create and to imagine, Murdoch thinks is, is a real source for moral change. And, you know, we can use this to become better, to become good. We can use this as a, as a way of moving towards the good and towards reality. But it can also be really dangerous because as soon as we start to make pictures, we're, if you like, potentially moving away from reality if those pictures aren't helpful ones. So this idea that as creatures, we, we have the capacity to form self-images and then to come to inhabit them, I think is, is really powerful for us today because it's both a warning and a kind of source of hope of, of the way in which we might all be able to move. I wonder though, and you know, I'm not a, a Murdoch scholar, so correct me if I'm completely off the track here, but I mean, one of her central ideas is that in a secular age, it should be possible to make the concept of, of the good do the sort of work that the concept of God used to do in a pre-secular age. And, and she seems to make concepts like truth and reality do similar sort of work. You know, they have this transcendent significance to them. But I wonder if, culturally speaking, we're moving increasingly far away and moving at warp speed from all of these kinds of unifying concepts. And, you know, in, in the same way that her idea of unselfing, that, that turning one's gaze outward and away from one's own selfish concerns is, say, is, is both urgently necessary, but also, in a way, it couldn't be more out of step with our culture at the moment. Is that a concern that, you, that, that either of you share? Yeah, I definitely share that. And I think that Murdoch's idea that we're these picture-making creatures can be really harnessed here as a kind of diagnostic. And so the fact that we do build these models, create these pictures, um, you know, false images actually often, and that we take those as aspirational and we move in the direction of those, I mean, it creates so much damage and harm. And I just think this kind of fracturing that we see in this kind of debasement of the, the idea of truth is also connected with that. But I think everything's becoming increasingly difficult because the number of images that we get exposed to and the media through which we engage with those images is just being ramified at like different scales. We're just bombarded all the time with images and we don't know how they're produced who's produced them, how we're being manipulated by them. Of course, th these are kinds of questions that sociologists and, and political theorists think about all the time. But from a philosophical point of view, um, I think Murdoch gives us the kind of apparatus that we need to try and think about how actual images 
and pictures and models and stories that we tell ourselves can shape the way we think and act and materially structure our environments. So I think you're right when you say that we're moving away from these concepts. And she was worried that actually we we will begin to lose these concepts if our thought and action is being shaped by the wrong pictures. Well, I just have one final question here, and, and this is about her work on character and virtue. And she's not thought of as, as first and foremost a political philosopher, but it seems to me that when you talk about virtue ethics in that Aristotelian mould, the moral character of individuals, then you're almost irresistibly led, or I certainly am, to think of our current political malaise in so many Western democracies right now and the way in which questions of moral character just do not seem to matter anymore, not, not to the electorate at least. What do you think about that, Rachel? One of the things about Iris Murdoch, one of the, the kind of contrasts that she sets up is whether you make the central kind of concept of your ethics, the concept of choice or the concept of vision. So she thinks that often when we're trying to evaluate whether or not somebody's good or bad or whether what they did was right or wrong, we, we're drawn to, to look at the specific decisions that they make. So here they are, they're, they're confronted with a decision. Did they do A or B? And she wants to move us away from that and to think that actually when we're evaluating or thinking about the moral and the good, we shouldn't be thinking in terms of vision. So we should be thinking about how somebody saw a situation, what was salient to them, what didn't they see, how was their vision shaped by cliche or by fantasy or what did they pay attention to? And that there's a big mistake, she thinks, that is, is connected to existentialism, to, to stuff that happened in philosophy in the 1920s and 30s. Um, but that I suppose we're left with now with this idea that, you know, we just want our political leaders to make the decisions that have the best utility or something. And when you're thinking about politics in terms of sort of discrete decisions and choice points, the notion of a moral character kind of goes missing. Um, and the notion like Claire said, of, of a historically situated individual goes missing as well. It's like you could just defer all this to a machine that would make utility calculations. So I think that shift from thinking in terms of, of choice and decision to thinking about vision and outlook is a really helpful way to bring back in the notion of moral character. But whether that's possible within the, the, the kind of context that we're in now is obviously we're a really long long way from that and I, I remember really clearly when you know we were having debates in this country about Boris Johnson and, and his moral character and whether the various exploits of his private life were relevant to his public life and, and that was a real fault line then between the people who said well look we need our politicians to have a certain kind of character that's going to enable them to make the right kind of judgment to people who said, no, 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 it doesn't really matter what his character is like. We just need somebody who's going to be able to make quick, good decisions under pressure. And I think there's a real split there. And, and, and in a way, even to raise that question and to open up the possibility that we want more from our politicians than kind of utility choices is a good way forward. Rachel Wiseman, lecturer in philosophy at the University of Liverpool, and you've also heard Claire McCool, lecturer in philosophy at Durham University. 
And there's a lot more information about the Philosophy by Postcard project available online. We're going to put details on the Philosopher's Zone website. You can find us via RN or the ABC Listen app. I'm David Rutledge, and uh, look, in the spirit of public philosophy, if you would like to have any particular philosopher or philosophical issue featured on this program, then uh, by all means, go ahead and let me know. You can tweet me at David P. Zone, and I'll be taking requests for the next little while. It'd be great to hear from you. Thanks for joining me this week. See you next time. <laughs>